Welcome to the New Masculine Podcast. This is a place where masculine identifying people come together in community to disrupt outdated models of masculinity and together construct new models for our way forward as men. As a special note, while this conversation is between men, this podcast values all beings and seeks to create positive impacts for all. I'm your host, Travis Stock. I am a master life coach, an equus coach, which means I often partner with horses when supporting clients, and I'm a teacher. In my coaching work, I am passionate about the balance of masculine and feminine energies in each of us, regardless of gender. I seek to help others nurture a relationship with both types of energy, which often leads to a greater sense of wholeness. And yet what I found in my work with men is that many of us have been taught messages about what it means to be a man by first teaching us to avoid anything that is associated with the feminine. That avoidance leads to few experiences of intimacy, emotions outside of anger, vulnerability, or even a sense of belonging. Striving to comply with these models of masculinity has many of us feeling isolated, ashamed, unworthy, afraid, angry, and depressed. That's why I started this podcast, to bring men together who are ready for something new, something more whole. Hey everybody, welcome back to The New Masculine. My next guest, Ryan A. Bush, is a dynamic thinker and designer whose life's mission revolves around building a brighter future for all. As the founder of Designing the Mind, Ryan is on a mission to provide wisdom, education, and push the boundaries of human potential beyond the ordinary. In his new book, Become Who You Are, a new theory of self-esteem, human greatness, and the opposite of depression, Ryan ventures into uncharted territory of thought. He argues that the pinnacle of human happiness isn't determined by the typical metrics of pleasure or pain, loss or gain. Instead, it's rooted in the admirability we find within our own actions. As a reader, I personally loved how he weaved in his own journey with autism and the lessons from the ups and downs of his mental health to help with the application of the framework he lays out. Personally, Ryan identifies as an introvert, as a practical philosopher, and as an entrepreneur. So let's not delay anymore and let's welcome Ryan into the new masculine. Thanks for joining me, Ryan. Thanks for having me, Travis. I'm happy to be here. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you. Is there anything that uh, the listeners should know about you prior to jumping into the meat of this conversation that I haven't already mentioned? Uh, no, you covered most of it. I'm uh, kind of uh, working through designing the mind to build a lot of tools, a couple books, programs, uh, physical products, just to help uh, catalyze personal growth for people. I've got uh, a couple careers going concurrently. I'm, I'm also the chief design officer for uh, a company that I'm a, a co-founder at. And so uh, I'm working to design everything from uh, you know physical products to buildings to uh, software. But I've applied you know, a lot of those design skills that I have through that profession to uh, creating some, I think, beautiful and, and useful products that people can use to, uh, you know, cultivate wisdom and, and improve themselves. Mm. Yeah, the life of an entrepreneur, we're all having our hands in so many different places, making it all work. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I think your sort of analytic and your sort of engineering mindset that goes into all of this, that's kind of what I picked up in the book. I think that's really going to speak to men that are listening to this, because oftentimes we don't necessarily focus on our emotional lives. We focus more on our thinking and our doing. And so I think by reflecting on self-esteem and the opposite of depression and all of those things from that engineering and analytic mind, I think a lot of men are really going to be able to connect with your perspective on all of this. Yeah, I think so too. You know, the first book was very much centered around this software-based view of the mind where mm. we're kind of reprogramming these 
uh, emotional algorithms in our heads. And that's really appealed to a lot of people that haven't really connected with a lot of other self-help stuff mm -hmm. uh, because it kind of works the way their mind does. In many cases, software developers and that kind of thing. And so this book, uh, this new book kind of kind of dials that down a little bit. It's a little more uh, universal, but it, it still has that same kind of analytical approach to uh, psychological growth. Mm, I love it. We'll, we'll dig into it a little bit more as we get into this conversation, but I'd love for my listeners to be able to connect with who you are as a, as a person. So um, where I like to start all the time is to just find out what are some of the stories that come to mind that you can think of, of your sort of journey from boyhood into manhood? What did you learn about being a man in this culture? Yeah, it's been a, it's been an interesting one. I feel like in some ways, I've come full circle in my relationship to my own masculinity and my understanding of that concept. Uh, and that, you know, when I was growing up, I really didn't have any concept that I can remember of masculinity. Uh, my parents were both very thoughtful, sensitive people who uh, really didn't push any kind of gender norms on me. And I think I'm I'm thankful for that. I didn't have any kind of uh, shame at not being enough of a man in those early years. Um, pretty much up until I was 12, I didn't give any kind of thought to that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and I can, you know, I can remember when I was very young, I was totally uninterested in sports and roughhousing and the kind of things we associate with boys. Um, I was, I was really into words and uh, language and also um, things like Pokemon cards and you know that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I, I remember like one time my parents took me to have like a play date with some neighborhood kids that were my age and they mostly wanted to like wrestle and hit each other with baseball bats. And I was like, oh my God, what is this? Like, who are these barbarians? <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I just didn't have much of that from that age and uh, really didn't, really didn't uh, want to be like that. I, I was a pretty sensitive kid. I um, you know, I remember being like easily made to feel guilty about, you know, if I was slightly dishonest or, uh, you know, I was very compassionate. I remember crying one time because a slug had crawled into our dog's water bowl and drowned. Like I, I was that, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was that kind of sensitive as a kid. Um, and, uh, you know, largely it was really when I went into what I call real school in seventh grade that I, um, you know, at the time, it was kind of like a wake up call kind of thing, that there was something else culture wanted me to be. Because um, I'd been, I, I went to Montessori school, uh, which is a very sort of hands on learning approach. And then I was homeschooled after that. And it wasn't until seventh grade that I really uh, went into real school and decided I, I was ready to like, you know, be a normal kid or whatever. And, uh, you know, be around, you know, be socialized the way most kids are. And, um, yeah, I, I felt like I had kind of landed on an alien planet when I got there. I, uh, I, I somehow thought by seventh grade, we were pretty much adults. And I, I pictured the seventh grade cafeteria being like what you might picture a college cafeteria being like or something. And it was just, uh, it was a shock. I, I was not, uh, like socially on the right page and I didn't really know how to communicate. I didn't have the social skills and um, yeah, it's, it's just not how my brain worked at that age. And so um, what, uh, what this kind of kicked off is kind of a journey I went on that I think uh, 
you know, in some ways was a really positive, healthy thing. And in other ways, it was kind of a detour that I had to get past to get back to kind of where I am now. But, uh, you know, I basically decided I'm not, you know, really proud of who I am right now. I feel like I'm uh, scared and just weak and and not really the person I want to be. Um, and the the big decision that I made after that first year was to join the football team, which for me was uh, just kind of ridiculous. Like my parents didn't get it. Uh, the, the teammates on the football team didn't get it. I was this like tiny, you know, chess team kind of kid that didn't talk. And I wanted to go get out there and get beat up, basically. Um, I think I think the part of this that was really healthy was, uh, you know, that I wanted to get out of my comfort zone. I wanted to do the opposite of what I was comfortable doing. And uh, it very much did that. I basically, through this experience of playing football and then playing for four more years through high school, um, I really got to a point where, you know, almost nothing could really intimidate me uh because you know i could think about those friday night games and that like thank god i'm not doing that now it's basically uh the mindset uh you know in some ways i feel like it was uh it was less healthy in terms of uh you know the the notion i had of what you know a man needed to be the you know getting out there and basically causing myself brain damage by smacking my head against right. other people. And, um, you know, I, I had a lot of ideas throughout high school about, um, you know, just the importance of like being strong and not showing weakness and, uh, grit and willpower and discipline Again, some, some being healthy, but some, uh, some that I had to kind of work through as I got older and grow out of in some ways, I think I did have, uh, ideas about masculinity that, went too far towards kind of the cultural norm and wasn't really in alignment with who I was. Uh, I still see it as, you know, an overall positive thing uh, just because it, it got me so much more comfortable doing these things. I mean, I, I developed my social skills so much through that and, and, mm. you know, made some lifelong friends on that football team. And uh, yeah, just, just generally everything from like giving presentations to asking out girls became a lot easier because I had already done the most unthinkable thing that I mm. could do essentially. And so I do recommend that kind of thing, but that's really interesting. That sort of like detour in your life where you took a turn that no one expected, including maybe even yourself, how I like how you're like laying it out. You can see that there were positives to that. There were things that stretched you in good ways. There were things that taught you things. There were relationships and bravery skills and confidence skills that were created in that. But you can also see the shadow side of it where it started to tip into sort of more traditional ideals of masculinity that weren't really aligned with you, that were telling you you needed to be something different than you are, that were encouraging risk taking and violent behavior, maybe. So I, I like that you can see that it's not all good, not all bad, that it's sort of a this mixed bag and you get to take with it, take from that experience what you want to gain from it and leave behind the things that are no longer in resonance with you. I think those detours in life are important that we all take. I, I think so too. I, th I think it's a big part of what you need to do at that age. And, and to some extent throughout your life is put yourself in situations that don't make sense that you don't think of yourself being in so that you can say you've had the full range of experience and, and then you know, you're choosing to be the person you want to be because that's actually who you want to be and not because there's this fear or this self-limiting belief blocking you from being that person. You know, I think um, in, 
the reason I say I've come full circle is I think at this point in my life, I'm more like I was as a kid and that I really don't have uh, much of a masculine identity. I don't think about these ideas very often. Uh, and I kind of just am who I am and I'm interested in what I'm interested in uh, as an individual. And so uh, overall, I think I think it was a necessary journey, but yeah, something to move past in some ways. Oh, gosh, I, I want that for everybody to be able to have that full circle moment where they really get to enjoy what they enjoy, be curious about what they are curious about without sort of the limitations that we internalize or that we believe we need to follow um, about, oh, I'm a man, so I can't be curious about that, or I can't like that thing, or I can't be, I can't be involved in these kinds of things, because that's not what men do. I, I want that freedom for all of us. And I think that that's sort of at the core, what this whole podcast is about is like freeing us all up for to follow our own intrinsic sort of guidance, our own curiosity, our own instincts about things so that we don't have to feel limited by what we're told is successful as a man. Yeah, no, I, I want it for everyone too. And I think, I think there are also, you know, other, other components that happen around that time that were kind of necessary for that. Like, um, like I, I started studying philosophy at a really early age. I was just, as soon as I discovered this kind of thing on the internet, when I was, you know, 14, I was obsessed with it. And uh, the the kind of questions that you learn to ask in philosophy, where you, you question dominant ideas in culture and you, you know, get out of normal perspectives, uh, it's really, I think, necessary to be able to get to that place where you can be comfortable with yourself. Uh, because it, you know, it's almost like travel when you, you know, go to another culture and, uh, you know, you experience different ways that people live, you can, you can have some culture shock, but it puts your culture into context and you can mm -hmm. step back and say, this is only one way to be. And philosophy does the same thing, I think, for the mind. I think everyone should be studying philosophy from an early age and, uh, and practicing introspection too. I mean, I, uh, I was very fascinated by the inner workings of my own mind and uh, would go on these long walks and just ask myself questions about who I am. And I think in a lot of ways, we have this introspective deficiency uh, in our culture where people don't ask these questions of themselves. They don't get to know themselves that well, or it takes them too long to, uh, just because we've got all these distractions that can kind of keep us from being alone with our thoughts and, and really, uh, you know, digging into who we are and what we really believe and who we think we should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there certainly are a lot of distractions out there in the world for us that pull our attention outward rather than inward. And so many, I mean, the reality is, is there's some challenging things we're all navigating in this world. There's war, there's a global pandemic, there's racial reckoning, there's uh, political unrest. There's so much that's happening in our world right now that I think sometimes it's really scary to go inward and really ch in, and feel into what's really going on for us or what we're afraid of or what this is bringing out in us because it's just alarming and we don't necessarily all have the skill sets to how to navigate the the breadth of our emotional landscape. And I think especially as men, we're really not given tool, a toolbox for how to do that from growing up. We're actually told to push those emotions aside and to move on from them. And they're not really what are for men. So I think you're I think you're right that um, there are so many distractions out there that are easier to pay attention to than to really do the artwork of introspection. Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think uh, 
when, when you aren't used to doing that, it's a lot scarier too, because you can just get, you know, if you haven't already explored your, your mind and your emotions pretty well, you go in there, you're going to find a lot of things you don't like all at once. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you have been practicing <laughs> this, you know, and, and there's a negative emotion, you're like, oh, that wasn't there before. Maybe I should explore that a little bit. But if you uh, really have been avoiding, you know, inquiring into your own mind and, and being alone with your thoughts your whole life, then yeah, you're going to you're going to have a lot to deal with at this point. And really, it should have been a gradual process that we were all kind of mm. taught to do from an early age. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in your own journey with introspection, you sort of picked it up pretty early on, you started to love philosophy and become sort of like, really fascinated by your own inner workings, what have been some of the biggest lessons or the biggest uh, uh, benefits for you as a person from doing that introspective work? Yeah, that's a it's a great question. I think uh, one of the biggest questions that I was asking myself early on and that has continued to be a really valuable exercise for me is asking who I admire and what specifically I admire about them. Um, you know, because it, it's easy to just pick people to either like uh, idolize or demonize out there. But I'm really big on isolating individual traits, uh, acknowledging that there's no perfect people and saying this aspect of this person I want to be like that. And this aspect of this person, I want, I want to embody that. And, and, uh, and I think I was doing that from an early age. I have, you know, uh, I have notes still that I can go back and look at from, you know, when I was 16 years old, where I was, you know, writing down these kind of, uh, these mentors, you know, some philosophical, some, uh, in my own life, some fictional and, uh, really asking myself, what, what can I take away from this? How can I, uh, build these strengths into my own behavior. And so that's kind of one of the many introspective exercises. I also created like a color coded mind map of my own identity. Like I had like eight main colors that I then broke down into individual traits. And, uh, you know, this kind of thing I think is really useful and also just, uh, really satisfying when you do it, it makes you very comfortable with who you are. Um, and I've done uh, done and taught people to do uh, just tons of these exercises. It's what I I built a uh, deck of introspection cards mm. uh, to basically encourage people to do these things themselves. And so you take a card out of this deck and the little you know pocket sized logbook, and you go on a walk and reflect on that question, write down your answer, and you know by the end you've got this kind of uh, just pyramid of self knowledge that you've built that a lot of people just don't aren't ever prompted to build. Mm. What are some examples of traits that you've admired in other people that you've really started to like own for yourself as, oh, these are things I'd like to continue developing in myself, just so people have an example of what what you're kind of talking about? Uh, for me, some of the big ones are, uh, well, creativity on the one end, ingenuity. Uh, I've got a lot of people like, you know, Buckminster Fuller, who uh, are just almost uncategorizable innovators who are just <laughs> designers and inventors and and creators of all kinds. Uh, wisdom is another huge one. You've got people like Marcus Aurelius, um, who embodies. I mean, he he might be my top example of all because he embodies so many of the traits. Uh, you know, not just wisdom, but the the integrity to be a a Roman emperor and have all the power in the world and to choose to tr to work really hard to have integrity and to live a good 
honest life. I mean, there's something incredible about that. Uh, self-control and self-mastery is huge. Uh, just vision and, and uh, you know, thinking about the the innovators like Steve Jobs and that kind of thing too. And then, um, yeah, you've got, uh, you know, rationality and, and the intellect that I see in a lot of the authors that I read and admire. Mm. So you're sort of acknowledging these are traits or attributes that um, other people you admire in other people and that you admire in yourself when you're able to demonstrate them and to embody them and to live into those are though in your belief system are there like a set of these traits that everyone should be looking for or do we all have different traits that we uh, should be looking for and is this like an individual process or is this a, a sort of more collective process it's kind of like the nature nurture debate. It's like we uh -huh. know it's both. We know that a combination of our uh, genes and our upbringing result in who we are. And I think uh, similarly, it, it's a mix of, uh, you know, there are certain universal values that we have pretty much across the human population. And, you know, people like Martin Seligman have done the research and, and seen that a lot of these traits, you know, he he grouped them into 24 virtues they appear across all cultures, even those that are totally different from our kind of Western culture. And so there is a big chunk of core values that are universal, but I also compared it to fingerprints before. It's like all mm. of our fingerprints pretty much look like fingerprints. And yet, if you get a magnifying glass out, none of them are quite alike. And so I think everyone should should sort of have their own slightly different virtue portfolio, I call it, you know, this collection of traits that you both uh, really admire in others and maybe have always thrived at yourself uh, that, that won't be quite the same as anyone else's. Um, and Nietzsche said that too. He's another kind of uh, exemplar of wisdom and vision and, and uh, rationality. And, and he said, if you have a virtue, it is your virtue. Like no mm -hmm. one else has quite the same virtue as you do. It's built into your unique genes and mind. Mm. I love that metaphor of the fingerprint because we all can just identify like if we saw a fingerprint like a pattern like that we would know that's a fingerprint but yet it takes a little bit more nuanced approach and looking deeper in to see the individuality in 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 them and to really pick out what makes it unique um, and so I like that that that's a helpful uh, perspective because I do think there are I mean just thinking about like in the US where we get taught very um early on around like virtues of like pulling yourself by your bootstrap self-sufficiency um uh like capitalism the sort of ideas around sort of like work hard and you will receive success in terms of financial well-being and success and so like we we are taught some things in our cultures that are virtues and values that we should live into and while we can argue that some of them are really good, we can also argue that some of them are a little worth questioning and a little worth reflecting on, wait, does that actually work for me? Does that align for me? Do, would I admire myself if I was to embody those things? And I like that that you give that sort of ability to have it be both, that this nature and nurture, we can find out what we really want for ourselves. But there is some of of the things that we will value that are the things that we grew up being taught and being shown and and being and witnessing constantly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think this is kind of like in my having read the book, it's sort of my understanding of kind of the philosophy that you're laying out is this pe this piece around that our own well-being, our own self-esteem is based on 
being able to admire our own traits, our own virtues that we embody. Can you share a little bit more about your philosophy on on this? Yeah, so the the philosophy, and this is uh, kind of the, the product of a decade or so of trying to understand a lot of related phenomena. You know, I've been trying to understand what this self-esteem thing is in our heads. I've been trying to understand depression, uh, and that one is particularly elusive in terms of understanding um, and, uh, you know, I've been trying to understand overall well-being and, and why we have this sort of sense of well-being that, that pervades our lives. Um, and one of the one of the things that has always struck me um, is that, you know, our well-being doesn't actually do what we expect it to all that much of the time. You know, we uh, sort of navigate our lives with this map that is based around a combination of short-term pleasure and uh, sort of delayed gratification for long-term gain and improvement of our circumstances. And, and uh, you know, you got these studies like uh, Daniel Gilbert uh, wrote Stumbling on Happiness and, and talks about how lottery winners and paraplegics uh, have the same, you know, levels of happiness after a year. Uh, so we, you know, we, it's so deeply built into our minds that, you know, winning the lottery is very, very, very good and losing our legs would be very, very, very bad. But it doesn't actually map on to how human well-being operates. And, and inquiring into that, I found a few really interesting lines of thought. You know, one of them is the ancient Greek virtue ethics that argues that uh, basically this thing that they called virtue that has this sort of stuffy connotation today, um, this was all that mattered to our happiness. Like literally, you are as happy as the virtue that you managed to exercise. And they had a word eudaimonia, which basically the, the more virtuous you are, uh, the, the more you reach toward this state of eudaimonia, this peak well-being that was really rooted in, um, I, I would say, a, a view of yourself that is full of admiration and, and justified admiration, not just narcissism where you tell yourself you're awesome, but you know really have it based on your actions on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and I started finding more modern evidence that there was um, that this was really a, a fundamental truth about how the human mind worked. You know, I was looking at how uh, how virtues evolved in the first place, how these traits like creative intelligence and generosity uh, came about. Like, why would that? Why would these things serve our survival? Why would you know artists exist? Why are we doing these things that don't seem to serve uh, our survival in any way? And I I came across the thinking of Jeffrey Miller, who argued that. Uh, basically, these these positive human traits came about for the same reason that colorful feathers and you know uh, songs came about in these birds, uh, like exotic birds. You know, they they essentially are uh, contending in the great social and sexual landscape in many ways. And so these things often get selected specifically because they don't serve survival. Because you have to be really fit in order to be able to have these traits and still survive. And in many ways, I think that's why we have traits like creativity and, and generosity, because, you know, it signals, uh, you know, I have enough resources and enough connections that I can afford to spend my time thing, doing things that don't serve my survival or be generous to other people, give up something of my own because I don't I don't need it. And so I started looking into uh, the theory called the sociometer theory that says that uh, basically our, our self-esteem is really just a fuel gauge for our social esteem. And we evolved to kind of 
optimize our social standing and uh, and improve these things. Uh, and then there's there's things like the default mode network in the brain, the the part that is active pretty much any time we're not engaged in another activity. Uh, all evidence suggests that this constantly active part of our brain is very self-reflective. It's thinking about us and our social landscapes. And I started asking the question, okay, what if depression and well-being are really the uh, the regulatory mechanisms of this self-evaluation in our head? So we have uh, we're constantly evaluating ourselves based on these character traits and strengths that we have, these virtues. And whether we determine that we're highly approvable and admirable or uh, disapprovable, you could say, is what's going to determine our mood and and the behavioral strategies that result from those moods. Uh, so that's getting kind of heavy into the the theory and the science behind it. Uh, but ultimately, the, the message is that uh, our happiness very well really may be the result of the admirability that our brains pick up on in our own behavior. Our brains are constantly looking for evidence that we are someone that we ourselves admire. And mm. and it's regulating our moods up or down as a result. Mm. Well, it's really fun to listen to how your brain kind of pull like you have this ability to pull in different frameworks and put them together and make sense of them and to bring all these different philosophies together. So I appreciate you going deep in there for a moment because it's fun to, to, to pay attention to how all of these play out. I think a core thing that I'm picking out in all of this is there's um so much about what we admire or in others and in ourselves is really about our sort of social lives and our how we fit in as social beings that are wired for connection like as babies we are wired for connection we need to connect with others in order to survive as a baby so therefore then we develop this ability to rate ourselves and analyze assess ourselves based on how well we fit into some sort of social connection, what's going to get us connected and what's going to what's going to cause us to be rejected or be not not be accepted in some way. Yeah, it, it's very social in origin, as most unique human traits are, because we're such a social animal. Um, there there's sort of two sides to that, which is that one, yes, your social landscape, your social communities, your tribe, you know, it's it's a hugely influential part of your well-being and your self-esteem. I know for me, when I was, um, you know, kind of struggling with some of the things that helped me figure this whole thing to, out and piece it together and was going through, you know, a little bit of depression and low self-esteem for myself, a big part of that was the fact that I was not uh, feeling highly approved of in my, you know, workplace, in my social community at the time. And I didn't have that many other communities I was a part of that were, sending me the opposite signal. And so my brain just didn't have the evidence it was looking for that I had these virtues that I pride myself on. The other side to it, though, is that a big part of what our brains are doing, I think, is not just saying, uh, how well do I fit in in this particular social group? But am I acting out the kind of behaviors that I would admire in someone else? And you can see this in, you know, depressed patients who uh, very often, you know, in, in severe depression, they're, you know, unable to leave their house or get out of bed some days. Uh, you know, they're not doing any activities except for, you know, basically streaming and playing video games and scrolling and, and uh, this kind of thing. And as a result, uh, they fall into this vicious cycle of low mood and low activity and, and low self-regard. 
and they can't seem to pull themselves out by any of these angles. And that's one of the reasons why one of the best clinical treatments uh, for depression is behavioral activation and creating an activity schedule where basically you just make it your goal to do a little bit more today than you did yesterday or to consistently uh, you know, take a shower every day. And then once you got that down, you go for a walk and then you read a book. Uh, and as you work more and more of these behaviors uh, into your lifestyle, I have theorized what you're basically doing is giving your brain more and more evidence of those virtues that you have through your behaviors. So whether or not you're a part of a a community, which uh, sadly, many of us, if you know, maybe most of us in Western society aren't really a part of one. Um, you still, it's very important, just you yourself, uh, that you send your brain the right messages about what kind of person you are, what kind of behaviors you're taking, and what strengths and virtues are found in those behaviors. Hmm. I'm glad you pointed out there that that kind of is a there's two parts of it. And there's part of it is like the message was receiving from others. And then the other part of it would and maybe even the more important part of it is, is, are we showing up in ways that we admire or would admire somebody else if they were showing up in that way. And I think that there's that it sort of maps to my own philosophy around so much of our lives, it teaches us to be very externally referenced to reference our well-being and our self-esteem and our uh, our worth based on what the feedback we get from the external environment. And yet that's such a tricky game because every single person needs something different from us and other people have different uh, things that are going on for them that they project onto us. And I think you mentioned it in the book too that people don't always – like if they admire something in you, they don't always just come up to you and say, I admire this about you or give you that clear feedback. It might show up as jealousy. It may show up as yep. like judgment because we're humans and we're flawed and we not everybody has done the self sort of internal reflection pieces that help them know what they're truly feeling about stuff. So if we base it solely on the feedback we're getting up from the external environment, it's fickle and it's hard and it, it can it can really tank our self-esteem and our well-being. But when we learn to internalize that and to know what we admire and what we're working towards and align our behaviors with those things, then we sort of kind of take back control of our own self-esteem and, and our own mental health and well-being. Yeah. And, and you know, kind of like you said, it makes sense that our brains would have grown to work this way because, uh -huh. uh, yeah, you can't rely on the signals you get from other people all the time. You know, they're yeah. not always going to say exactly what they think to your face. And so it it's the most important indicator is, you know, the values that we have that we evaluate other people according to, we're going to be constantly evaluating ourselves through that same lens. And so you the question you really should be asking is not how can I get this person's approval or that person's approval? It's the person with the values most similar to your values, uh, which is you, essentially. So <laughs> that's that's the person you need the approval of. Right? Uh. I love this. So we're talking a little bit conceptually. Can we like bring it down into application and really like, will you share more about your journey during that time frame where you were struggling with depression and, and what you were noticing during that time and how you worked your way out of that? Yeah, I, I sort of think about this period as as uh, like an experiment for me because I had never really my whole life, I'd never really had uh, anything but high self-esteem and a general sense of like high well-being. Um, and, and this period that was only, you know, several years ago now, I was kind of in this 
struggle where I was trying to write this book that would become my first book, uh, but it wasn't written yet. I, I had, ne had no, uh, you know, real feedback on how it was or how I was doing. Uh, I was working two days a week at my job because I'd asked to go part time and take a 60% pay cut in order to uh, be able to write this book the other three days of the week. Um, and, uh, you know, I was feeling more and more alienated at that job. Uh, there was a new person who joined who, you know, I felt like was kind of antagonizing me and just didn't like me from the start. Uh, and she ended up uh, being the person who kind of unsolicitedly diagnosed me with autism, which added mm. another layer of like this internal battle going on where I was, you know, in my role at work, I was not seeing evidence of my ingenuity that I mentioned because, um, yeah, like I, like I, I, I'd kind of worked into a more engineering drafting based role than the creative design that I started in, uh, just cause of kind of how the product cycle evolved. Um, and with the autism thing I was wrestling with, I was questioning the charm and the social virtues and the, you know, these things that I had uh, prided myself on and was now saying, oh, am I just like, do I just have this distorted view of myself and I'm actually this unlikable guy? And um, and then, you know, I wasn't really at a point with designing the mind and with my work where I was seeing uh, where I was really getting that wisdom out there and that rationality and those other traits. And so basically I was I was caught in this echo chamber uh, and and there was a, a pandemic too that that uh, that well, was kind of just the icing <laughs> on the cake, uh, yeah. And that that made it so I couldn't really go out and do the normal activities and be a part of the social groups that I would have. Uh, so yeah, I, I was kind of caught in this. Uh, you know, I, I there was all this noise and not a lot of signal that my brain was able to find, and so I did kind of enter this spiral where I was questioning my own worth in a way that I hadn't before. And I had this uh, just like nasty feeling in my gut, this kind of like, you know, felt like kind of a, a low level shame that I felt towards myself that was kind of always there. And so it gave me a new appreciation for what people who, uh, you know, have have dealt with depression a lot more seriously and chronically than I have. Um, and, and it's really because of this experience that I was able to um, put together all these pieces that I had been studying for years on what what depression is and what self-esteem is. It's like uh, actually living it gave me a new uh, filter for evaluating all this evidence and it made a lot of things click. Uh, and it also made some of those social struggles that I talked about in seventh grade uh, click. You know, I don't think it was just the homeschool thing. I think my brain does work in a very different way uh, from most people. And and I think, I, you know, today I see that as a good thing and a gift and a kind of a unique, uh, unique set of virtues. But uh, yeah, at the time, it was kind of this thing I was wrestling with and questioning everything. Mm. Yeah, you mentioned that um, autism has been a part of your journey and that sort of that neuroatypical or neurodiverse way of looking at things. I can imagine, and you tell me where I'm wrong, but I can imagine that at least initially or in the beginning of that for a lot of people, that having a brain that works differently might create self-judgment, lack of self-esteem, lack of fitting in. Um, paying attention to what doesn't what doesn't work typically or doesn't work in a typical way. 
And yet it sounds like you've been able to transform the way you hold that into like sort of part of your gift, part of the thing you admire in yourself, part of the way that allows you to bring forward your work in a new way. Yeah, well, there, there's really kind of two two waves of it. There was the the actual social struggles that res, that were the result of my brain working differently. And then there was the diagnosis itself that came later and grappling with that shift in my identity. Because mm. I, I learned pretty early on that, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't fit into a category. Like I, I kind of trained myself not to think uh, think of myself in terms of labels and to always kind of be an exception. And mm -hmm. in many ways, I, uh, you know, as soon as I learned that fitting in wasn't like what came naturally to me, I kind of latched on to um, being different in the way that I think in the way that I operate and came to pride myself on that at the time. Um, and that's, I think, why I did have pretty high self esteem, even though I did struggle socially, and it was hard to make friends for a long time. Um, and then when I later, you know, arrived at this diagnosis, it was kind of a, a period where I was questioning that. And I was saying, well, this this thing is a disease, right? This is a disorder that I have. And that paints a certain picture. It's it's yeah. harder to view yourself as different in a, a good way, in a way to be proud of when you've when you've realized that you've got this thing that's been branded as, uh, you know, a, a deficit or a, a something that went wrong a developmental disorder. And that's, you know, that's part of why I have, you know, looked deeper into the evolutionary origins of this kind of thing too, and asked, okay, why are autism and ADHD so prevalent if they're disorders? Why would they have stuck around and been preserved in the gene pool uh, if, if they're just a pathology? And I have concluded more and more that actually these are evolutionary adaptations um, and these different neurotypes, they are preserved in the gene pool specifically because they are rare and because they uh, are unusual traits that are admirable. And they kind of they kind of uh, create an imbalance where you you may have a less well-rounded set of virtues. You may be weaker in areas that are common to be stronger in, uh, but you may be stronger in areas that are less common, and that will make you stand out in your own way in in the social landscape. And mm. so I have come to the conclusion that it's really not a disorder. And I, I suspect within the next, uh, you know, decade or two, that will come to be the clinical understanding as well, that these are neurotypes and not disorders necessarily. Yeah, it's interesting how many things evolve in that way. Like, I, I, they're not at all the same journey. But I'm just reflecting as you hear about like my own experiences of difference in the world and sort of like, um, the social aspect of being a gay person in this world for myself. And then once I came out and labeled myself as that, and yet in the DSM for, a, for many, for a while, the homosexuality was classified as a mental illness, and then it's evolved beyond that. And so it's like, I, I can see this track that you're on and that, that you're talking about, about like, that these different neurotypes are, while we as a human race and a science or as as the medical field wants to sort of put it as labels as the difference means something's wrong that mm -hmm. maybe that's not actually the truth or the whole picture that over like over time we'll see that it's not really about something going wrong it's actually a part of what sets you apart and makes you unique and makes you and and brings out admirable tra admirable traits in you that are important to bring into the world yeah, it seems like we've gone through a similar 
uh, struggle and, uh, you know, kind of re-identifying, rebranding in our own minds how we think about these things. And I, I think, uh, yeah, I think it'll be a similar improvement to the way we uh, diagnose or or don't diagnose these differences if we can mm-hmm. uh, get to where being, you know, autistic is, is uh, just a different type of brain. It's a different way to be. It's not inherently worse. Mm. I wonder if there's sort of some sort of way, um, an offering that a lot of people can start to explore from the two of us connecting on our shared journeys with different parts of our identities, but um, some similar aspects of it that I think many people are concerned about or worried about the parts of themselves that are different, that don't fit in, that um, are uh, that don't map to the sort of typical versions of success that we're sort of given. And I think oftentimes the goal is to that that's something wrong with me. That's something to reject or suppress or to push away. And I'm wondering if sort of the invitation that you and I are talking about is, is like, get curious about those different parts of yourselves. And, and maybe there's a way to reframe the way you hold it to actually integrate it within you as a part of what of what you admire in, about yourself in the world rather than as a thing that you reject in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, identify that, that virtue portfolio, those those unique things that you are gifted at, uh, or that you admire, or, or whatever it is that whatever makes you feel proud, and really double down on those. Because, you know, if you can get your brain to a unique place, you can do some really unique things in this world. I mean, to me, what I've built with designing the mind is kind of unlike anything else out there. And I, I sort of feel like, no one else could do it like no one mm. else um and, and not because i'm the best because i'm you know the only in a sense i'm i'm the only person whose brain works quite like this and because i have embraced that to to a large extent and i have found ways to piece together all these unique passions and strengths and skills and ways of thinking in into a into its own idiosyncratic combination I've been able to build this vessel for myself that has resonated with a lot of other people now uh, through designing the mind. I, I created this by taking, you know, the the 10 different things that I'm uniquely interested in or good at and saying, how can I put all these together in one thing? Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it, it's all too rare that people find that way of uh, putting themselves with all their idiosyncrasies into some uh, vessel that's that's kind of greater than them, and so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, if you can identify those, you're you're one step closer to integrating them together into uh, something that could could really go beyond you as well. Mm, beautifully said. There's a couple more parts that I wanted to pull you out on in terms of things that stuck out to me from the book. Um, there's this one part in the book where you talk about, and you say this is kind of going against traditional thought, at least in the self help and personal development and that kind of world. Um, but I actually really agree with you on this, that that the ego is not something to transcend or the ego is not something to kill or to get rid of or to let to make it die. Like, I don't I don't necessarily prescribe to that belief system that something that is that we're born with, that is a part of our survival in this world is something that we need to get rid of. Tell me more about your philosophy on the ego. Yeah, I'm glad you asked about this. I haven't gotten to talk about it all that much because uh, mm. you know it's kind of deeper into the book and we just don't get that far a lot of the time yeah um, but but yeah there's there's sort of this idea that has become unquestionable in the self-help and the spiritual space 
which is that your ego is the bad part of you and you need to get rid of it. And you see this in so many forms. I mean, often uh, combined with healthy ideas, like I'm, I'm a big proponent of mindfulness and of, you know, kind of the Buddhist realization that uh, in many ways, the self is not this coherent construct, right? Where, you know, we're ultimately a, a combination of complex processes and perceptions going on in our brains. Uh, there's not just one unified self in there. But we do have this concept of self, and it does have this very important role in our, uh, you know, our well-being and our subjectivity. Um, and so, I'm again, I'm, I'm big on practicing mindfulness, but I'm not big on doing it as a way of transcending your ego or getting rid of this bad guy in your brain. Mm -hmm. uh, I actually don't even agree that the you know greatest, most altruistic contributors in history have been egoless. Um, my experience has been the more that I embrace a strong and positive view of myself, the more motivating it is to uh, go beyond myself and, and contribute those strengths to other people and do good things in the world. And I think uh, in the same way, self-actualization and self-transcendence go together, right? It, it's, uh, it's like your, uh, your, your positive acts toward other people overflow out of your own kind of self-love and self-appreciation. Mm. And uh, yeah, so I, I kind of uh, have gone against the very popular narrative and I've, I've sort of framed it this way. Basically, you know, if you think about your, um, you know, the highest possible state of well-being, that's like a one on the scale from negative one to one. And if you think about this, this really negative state of depressive rumination, that's a negative one. Well, what you would get if you, you know, successfully followed the advice of all these, you know, gurus that tell you to get rid of your ego is something like a zero, right? You, if you got rid of your sense of self, which, you know, theoretically we could do, even if it meant like surgically removing that part of our brain, mm -hmm. um, you know, you you wouldn't get the negative thoughts and feelings that come from being a self you don't approve of. Uh, so it's good on that sense. In that sense, you know, it would feel like a relief if you have been trapped in this depressed spiral. But you also wouldn't get the benefits of being a person that you do highly admire and that you are really proud of, right? You wouldn't get that eudaimonia and that positive uh, state of of satisfaction and well being with who you are. Uh, that I think is what the the ancient you know, sages basically taught. Um, and, and I think it's really true. So mm. I would say, you know, ultimately meditation and, and these things can be incredible tools. Uh, if anything, just to get a little bit of distance from your sense of self and, and the recognition that, okay, just because I'm having these thoughts about how I'm, you know, worthless and incompetent and, and unlovable, that doesn't actually necessarily make them true, right? There is something kind of incoherent about this, uh, you know, this, this sense of self that we have, but then, you know, step back in after you step back and, and mm. say, how can I build a better self? Not just how can I get rid of this self thing? Because it is absolutely integral to the function of our brains, right? L like I said, the default mode network is the part of our brains that is active all the time when we're not doing other things. And so I don't think you want to just disable that. I think you mm -hmm. want to go in there and, and re-engineer it, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I don't know that my goal in my life or that what I want for other people is to reach a level of neutrality. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, yeah. like, yeah, I want to be neutral at certain times about certain things, but I don't want to live a whole lifestyle of neutrality. And you were talking about that, like negative one to one scale, like, 
a zero isn't my goal, isn't where I want to be, isn't what what I would admire in a good life kind of situation. Like there are moments to be neutral and then there's moments to step in and to be active in your life and to be lit up by things and to be excited about things and to fall in love. Like, like neutrality is not falling in love. <laughs> right. And, and to be fair, you know, a lot of people that I'm kind of criticizing would, would counter back to that and say, no, actually it's not a neutral state. It's an absolutely blissful state to, to transcend yourself. And this mm. spiritual enlightenment uh, is, is uh, you know, the most positive state you can imagine. And so I haven't experienced the total transcendence yeah. of myself. I've gotten glimpses into it through some of my experiences uh, with it and with meditation and, and other things. But um, yeah, I, I haven't, uh, I, I can't say for sure that that is what it is, but I think it it's a way that makes sense to me to conceptualize it. If this really is how our sense of self operates and regulating our moods, it makes sense that no self would mean no mood, and that basically mm -hmm. we would we would be absent of that those chemicals that make us feel really good or bad about ourselves. I'm glad you stepped into this version, this part of the conversation, though, and like brought this out in your book because it's something that I, I say to my clients one on one, oftentimes, and it's like in a whisper form, like. Other people believe this, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just appreciate you just out out loud saying it. And it allowed me allowed me to connect to it and to go, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I've been tracking. And I haven't always had the words and the framework to put it out there, but it but thank you for putting it out there in a way that I was able to connect with and that other people can start to explore like, is the goal to transcend self? Like why 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 did we come into this self to then just transcend it in in our living life? Mm -hmm. So right. I, I appreciate you asking that question. Um, one other place that I really thought was uh, impactful towards the end of the book was this this thing around happy happy endings belief systems, like that there's a happy ending, this sort of destination place that we all get to, and how we get taught that from so young that we're looking for these happy endings. And then once we get to a certain place, we either don't feel happy because we've leaned into complacency or we're no longer stepping into our lives because we've already achieved it. And then the thing that we thought would be our happy ending is no longer a happy ending. T tell me more about this for how you conceptualize this. Yeah, I think this this idea in general that um, you know there's there's this one accomplishment that would mean you're successful and you're happy and you're good now, um, and you don't have to keep working at these things. Um, I think it can be really dangerous because the the idea is sort of that your brain um, needs to constantly get this signal on a regular basis. It's like getting oxygen; it needs to see uh, that virtue in your behavior. And so if you tell yourself, well, I, I worked hard and I retired or whatever it is, whatever that happy ending is, uh, and you convince yourself that the ideal goal would be to just like sit around and do nothing because now you can uh, or, uh, you know, just do whatever you feel like, uh, you know, you're, you're going to uh, slowly decline into that kind of depressive state that I that I described. You know, you don't really um, want to get to a point where you're no longer challenged. You're no longer striving you're no longer uh, being required to use those unique strengths that you've spent your life building. Um, so, so the idea that there's any uh, time in your life when you really get to ride off into the sunset, I think you should, uh, <laughs> you know, get past that bias because the the point of life really is to engage in these 
processes and to bring out your strengths and to be challenged and work through those challenges. Uh, it's not about being done, at least until until you're done, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why that sort of phrase resonates with a lot of people. It's it, the, the sort of concept that it's about the journey, not the destination. Um, that, that when we put everything on the destination, we miss out on so much of the journey. We miss on so much of the growth, the learning, the, the hard parts that cause us to grow. Like it really is something that I think I get why we, we sort of socialize ourselves and our society socializes ourselves into believing in a happy ending. Um, and it's not that a happy ending necessarily is a bad thing, but but it's the concept of ending. It's like, why are we looking for this ending and we're still have more life to live? Oh, yeah. I mean, that you see it all the time in like marriage, for example, people think that that's like the destination uh, of your relationships and your romantic life as you get married. And then that's the happy ending. Well, actually, you've, you've just kind of started opening uh -huh. up this what I what I tend to call a virtue domain this this opportunity to bring out your strengths through that relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean that it, that's an ongoing forever thing. It's not it's not something that's done. It's it's kind of just starting at that point. Mm, yeah, beautiful. I, I imagine there's a lot of virtue domains. There's like the perfect job, the perfect relationship, the perfect parenting skill set. The uh, like there's so many of them. I think parenting would be another great example. You have a baby, you're like, I reached this destination. <laughs> there's a lot more work to do in parenting yeah. beyond just having a baby. No, you, you've got big problems if you've got that mentality <laughs> with the, with the kid, but, uh, no, absolutely. I think, I think, uh, parenting is probably one of the best virtue domains out there. And, um, you know, I've talked about how it can, it can kind of demonstrate this idea and help bring it home a little bit. Um, you know, like, like if we think about the kind of happiness that we want for our children, it can really put into context the kind of happiness we should be seeking for ourselves. Like we don't mm. just want our kids to be like, um, you know, rich people who deal drugs to kids or whatever. <laughs> like, um, you know, we, we want, uh, we, we want them to, when we wish someone a, a happy life for, for their kids, we really are saying, you know, we, we hope they develop into admirable people. We hope their character develops and they have, you know, all these strengths. And, um, you know, we don't wish them an easy life uh, so much as we wish them a, a, a properly challenging life, but mm -hmm. one where they rise to those challenges and demonstrate strong character. And so I think even when we we can easily forget the kind of happiness we want for ourselves and tell ourselves, oh, I just want an easy, comfortable life. Um, and then we can remind ourselves, no, I, I, I want the same thing for me that I would want for my children, which is, you know, a, a, a deeper kind of well-being ultimately. Mm, beautiful. Well, we've had such a rich conversation where we've talked a lot about some like complex concepts. We've also applied it to your own journey, to my own journey as a man. I'd love if you could share with me, like thinking about like, as we wrap this up, if there's one piece of advice or an offering or something that you think is the most impactful that somebody could take from our conversation today, what would you sort of like to leave people with? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, you know, I feel like uh, it, in the very end of the book, I, I kind of share this piece where I address the kind of masculinity, femininity thing. Um, and I say, like, there's there's all these heated debates on the internet today about whether men should be more masculine or less and whether women should have careers or raise children and all these things. And uh, basically what I argue and, and one of the reasons I was 
curious to come on and discuss this with you is these are all really distractions from what you need to be doing yourself. What yes. what ideologies say this group should be or that group should be. These are these are just distractions. This is not really how you seek out how you should be. Um, I think you should you should be asking less and less. What should a person of my group be and more and more? Uh, what should I be based on my unique strengths and my values and the people I admire? If you ask this and throw out completely the notions of which group you're a part of and just identify, you know, man, woman, whatever race, whatever. If I admire something about that person, how can I integrate more of that into myself and into my lifestyle? I think that is your compass for navigating your life and your well-being. And you shouldn't be too reliant on uh, what other people say a person in your group uh, should be. And 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 you, you've already got all the information you need in your own uh, sort of ideals and, and evaluative impulses. Yes. Nailed it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing that. Um, and I appreciate you just kind of perfectly kind of laying that out for us, because I think that's what this is all about. It's not about identifying what you need to be in order to fit a certain group that you or a, group, a certain identity that you belong to. It's really about helping us find our own guide, inner guidance, our own uh, self-esteem, our own sort of like freedom to be as we are and to show up in the world in our most uh, sort of powerful spot, our most aligned spot, our most uh, admirable spot in our lives. So thank you for pointing that out. If people wanted to find out more about your work or to get a copy of the book or um, anything like that, how do they find you out there in the world? Yeah, so the the book uh, Become Who You Are will be available for pre-order very soon depending on when this goes live and you'll be able to find that anywhere you get books basically. Um but I would encourage everyone to go to uh, designingthemind.org/psychitecture uh and you can uh, I'm sure put that in the show notes to make the for spelling sure. a little easier but uh <laughs> that basically if you if you join the email list there I will send you a couple of uh, free books that I've already created. Uh, one is the the book of self mastery, which is kind of a quote compilation, and the other is the Psychotext toolkit, which is an introduction to the basic ideas of psychotecture in my first book. And uh, of course, you'll also know as soon as uh, as soon as you can get the new book. So it's all uh, it's all all there. Beautiful. Yeah, I'll make sure that's all in the show notes so people can find it pretty easily. Thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on, for sharing your book with me so that we could have this conversation and, and, and sort of introduce people to you and your work that are in my audience. Just appreciate this conversation. I've had a really great time uh, playing in this space with you. So thank you so much. Yeah, really great conversation. Thanks for having me, Travis. Yeah, you're welcome. If people want to find out more about my work or connect with me, you can go to my website at travisstock.com. You can find me on Instagram at Traver03, and we can continue the conversations that or questions that you have from this episode. Find me on there and let's keep the conversation going. Also, if you want to support the mission of this podcast, I'm at uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash the new masculine. Thanks again for joining me, Ryan. Until our next episode. <laughs>